Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, we are going to be getting serious as a heart attack very shortly because we're going to dive deeply into Ukraine and Russia. As I know you've been on your channel relentlessly since it started a week ago. I've been on my channel relentlessly. It's a lot, man. I mean, play me the world's smallest violin because, you know, I'm doing the job that I love. But right. a nonstop extra videos, breaking videos, this, that, like on top of it, like nobody's business. It's hard to keep up to. There's just, so many changes. I, I just I know we both feel like we always take our job seriously, but when you're talking about war and peace, there's just an extra level of, I want to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that I'm looking at both sides of the equation and that I'm taking in as many different news sources and on the ground accounts as I possibly can. Um, because the stakes are extremely high. So and high. so, so yeah, I mean, I think we've both been doing our, our best to, to try to do that. Yeah. But, we're going to bring you some not some non-Ukraine Russia topics to start with here. Yeah, we want to lighten it up a little <laughs> bit. It's been so heavy for so long. And some of these lighter topics aren't really light. Yeah. They're just lighter than potential nuclear annihilation. not nuclear war. Right, yeah. exactly. So go ahead. You start with the, the first one here. Okay, so I thought this was really interesting because one of the things that um, we've been tracking is the way that the pandemic will change things for the long term and especially with regards to work. So the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, has come out and she was one previously who was like, everybody needs to get back to work. And she's kind of a corporate aligned Democrat. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you can see how real estate developers, they certainly want workers back in offices. So a lot of companies like want you back in the chair so that they can have their eyes on you all the time. She has now acknowledged that we may never have a five day work week again. So here's the story. Um, she says the coronavirus, the coronavirus has likely killed the traditional schedule of commuting to the office for work five days a week. Quote, it may never be a five day week again. It may be four days with flexibility. It may be three and a half. She said following an event in Harlem. Still, she said that uh, employees occupying office buildings that uh, she wanted them to be there at least three to four days at minimum to spur economic recovery. She said in-person work spurs creativity and social development. People staying home now are missing a state comeback. So still there's like a get your asses back in the office. But this is a pretty dramatic shift. And, you know, uh, white collar workers, even ones who aren't unionized, which most of them aren't tend to be treated as actual human beings with regards to their employers. They tend to be treated like, you know, their their concerns about work-life balance tend to be taken a little bit more seriously. And what we've seen post-pandemic is that you have a lot of people who may have moved um, further away from the office who have really rethought what they want their lives to look like and are just saying, no, I'm not coming back into the office full time. And if you're going to make me, then I'm going to go get another job. So to be clear, she's not saying we're going to reduce the hours of people no. that are working. Uh, what she's saying is maybe you go into the office for three days or mm -hmm. four days and then you have one or two at home because people are effectively demanding that. Now, it is true to say there are some people who are such social butterflies and such extroverts that they want to be at the office. Mm -hmm. But I sure. think even for a lot of extroverts, they don't like feeling like they're in some sort of human zoo where they have to sit there and pretend to work five days a week. Yeah. I am working. <laughs> I am productive. I am productive. And it's just BS. I mean, I was like me when I worked at the dealership. Watching the clock me? of like who comes oh. in first and who leaves. And at the dealership, I would like, is nobody looking? Pop a little Percocet. <laughs> and sit there, have a little party in my head. Watch people walk by me and go to other salesmen and try to hide from the customers because I'm high as a kite and don't care. Anyway, I'm really shitting to myself here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> we all, it's nothing we don't all already know there. That is true, yeah. You know, but this does um, 
heighten a divide. One of the things the pandemic has done is like exacerbate and accelerated every inequality that we already had. So you already have these sort of like two classes of people, those who are treated as human beings and those who typically aren't. And it's really nice. I mean, I, I'm glad for white collar workers to be able to have more work-life flexibility, to be able to move out of cities that are really expensive and have more affordable housing prices. But that same benefit is obviously not going to flow to working class people who have to be, That's you know, right. yeah, service have jobs, to be service, service jobs. Job. But even even like professional jobs that aren't office jobs. So, for example, teachers pretty much have to be at the school. Mm. You know, nurses have to be at the hospital. So even people who are um, I think they call those sometimes pink collar jobs. Even people really? in that category of, of workers are not going to benefit from this flexibility. And then you also have dynamics of, um, I saw an article about how now these tertiary cities, people like move down to San Francisco to Austin. Now Austin's way too expensive. And then they move out of Austin to cities like Spokane. Mm -hmm. And that's pushing and the residents who live there are now being completely priced out of the housing market because you have people who are taking their salaries, which are higher from coastal cities and moving to secondary and tertiary cities and making life like miserable for the people there whose wages haven't gone up and are just trying to live and exist in their hometown. So there are a lot of follow on effects here that, you know, a benefit to one group is wonderful, but it's of limited value and can exacerbate sort of justified resentments when it's not shared by the whole class. True. I still think in general it's a move in the right direction, sure. though. Um, yeah. And by the way, you mentioned teachers there. I think certain fields, if you pick that profession, you do want to be more in person. Like, I think most teachers want to be in front of the kids. You know what I mean? Would you agree with that? I don't think most teachers want to sit there and teach on Zoom. No. Maybe in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe teachers some of them do. do not want to teach it, on yeah, Zoom. It, yeah, exactly. So, and, but the other thing is, I, I want to go a step further. I want to raise the stakes here. I would rather have a four-day work week because there's been a number of studies now that have showed that people are either equally productive or more productive if you work four days instead of five days. So actually, if you limit the hours a little bit, you can get more productivity yeah. out of that. Yeah. And so uh, I am now declaring as emperor god king of the world, and or at least of the United States of America, I am hereby declaring that we're going to do a four-day work week. Two days a week, you'll be in person. Two days a week, you'll be at home. It is now final. Well, and to your point... If we actually had policy instead of just like employers responding to the work life balance desires of their white collar workers while continuing to, you know, force their blue collar and service sector workers into the same precarious situations that they always are forced into. If you actually have policy that establishes that, then everyone can benefit. And of course, we know throughout history, basically every single um, gain made by the working class has been like militantly fought for and achieved right. by yeah. mm -hmm. unions. So that's where, you know, the whole conversation comes full circle because it does create a problem when you have not just differences in wages between working class people and, you know, sort of upper middle class or affluent or white collar, however you want to classify that group, the PNC. It's not just about wages. It's also you have this cultural split um, that makes it hard to sort of exist as a nation. And so when you have these divides that confer additional humanity onto one group while the other group just continues to be screwed over and screwed over in some ways more than ever with prices going up and the way they were treated during the pandemic and all of that, that does heighten tension in society. And it makes it so that we don't even share like a similar existence whatsoever and it's harder to connect across classes. Yeah, but you don't think like service sector workers are going to be like angry at these white collar workers who are going to 
people I think there's already a lot of resentment between classes. I mean, really, I don't I maybe I'm wrong, but I just can't see service sector workers looking at like some white collar workers who get to work home now from for two or three days of the week. I don't think they're going to look at that and be like, I'm angry and you should be forced to go to the office. I think there's resentment, though, about not, you know, it's you shouldn't have those things, but. The, dis- the greater the disparity, yeah, the more resentment that there ultimately is. I mean, I mean but- when you and, and this class of people are the ones like the management class. Mm-hmm. Those are the people even more so than the sort of like plutocrats and the Donald Trump level of, you know, wealthy individuals. That that is where there is a lot of resentment of like the boss but class. Most of these people are not management, though. They're just regular office workers. I mean, look, the reason why I'm always hesitant to go down this path with this mm-hmm. narrative is because it is fundamentally at odds with the 99% versus the 1%. We're going to have to recognize that service sector workers gain just as much as the white collar workers if we come together in solidarity right. and fight for these things. But yes. if you're at each other's throats because of stupid cultural differences, it's like, okay, then we're never going to get anywhere and we're dividing and conquering right in front of our own eyes. I'm not trying to spin a narrative. I'm trying to talk about what I think is reality. Fair enough. Okay. You know, and yeah. the reality that we see right now isn't we have encouraging green shoots of a resurgent labor movement that could achieve these sorts of gains for everybody broadly. And that broadly shared gains among all workers and that sort of solidarity amongst classes, obviously that's the ideal. But when you don't have it in that context and it contributes to a further sort of coming apart, then yeah, I think you have a problem. And I think that's what fuels, you know, making right-wing populists like charlatans like Donald Trump and helping them get elected. I think those are the sorts of anger, that sort of anger and resentment that leads to bad political outcomes oftentimes. Yeah, but I again, I I look at this story and I think that is overwhelmingly a positive thing. And I don't see many service sector workers who are going to like want to drag down some middle class person because they're have, they happen to be lower middle class. You don't think it's a worrying concern for the country when you have people on totally different tracks? Well, that's not what I said. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, but th- that's what it, what we're talking about. No, here. I mean, no, it's it's a small win for a group of people who don't often get wins. And I think that's something to celebrate. Okay. You know, I mean, yeah. gr- look, I'll grant you that people at the lower end of the economic ladder absolutely have fewer wins. And that's a problem. And I want to get them as many wins as possible. But I don't think the the real concern should be that person who's one rung above you on the ladder is the one we should focus our ire on because it's like hey good for you guys if you get to work home a little 100%. bit more i want to put all my focus on fucking jeff bezos but when and the, the donor only class. wins ever accrue to that group that's a problem and that that's what i'm pointing out is like there's an ideal that the winds will trickle down from the sort of white collar workers more broadly and there's a I hope that, that and that will never happen yeah no i don't so, think that i think that you have things working in parallel to each other. So you just mentioned the resurgent labor movement, Mm -hmm. you know, the story of the John Deere workers who fought and won. Yeah. That's one example of, you know, people working their way up that economic ladder. And at the same time, if there's some sort of, you know, middle class pressure, however that pressure manifested that effectively forced the business owners to be like, you know what? Okay, we're going to let you work home for two days or three days of the week. I celebrate it. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think we have to acknowledge the limits of that, uh, of that progression and that it is only going to make a further gulf between the treatment of white collar workers and blue collar workers. If all of the gains only went to the middle class and the lower middle class or the poor were left out of the equation, 
I would agree with you, but our difference here is that I think these fights are happening in tandem, and it's mm, a good thing. You think this is all part of one? I think it's all part of one thing because I again, so. I believe I believe 99% versus 1% is our real divide. So I'm not going to go after my fellow brother and sister who might make 60 grand a year because I make 30 grand a year, or whatever it might be. I view that as like good for you guys. Now help us with our struggle. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that's how I look at it. That doesn't happen very often, though. That's okay. the problem. Well, we're gonna we're gonna try to revive that. <laughs> okay, so, but you have some. Comments from our friend, Mr. Shapiro, that you wanted to share. Yes. Uh, so this uh, blew up on Twitter the other night, and it's Ben Shapiro responding to Joe Biden's State of the Union address. He has some thoughts that are seemingly out of left field. Let's take a look and then we'll react. OK, so that is what he had to say on Ukraine. Then he got into the bad part of his speech. Okay, That was the best part of his speech. Then he got into the bad part. So he started talking about the pandemic. And this is where the lies begin. Because when you're the president of the United States and you've had the worst 14 months of any president of the United States ever, ever. I mean, Abraham Lincoln had a full-scale insurrection on his hands in the beginning of his administration. That wasn't caused by Abraham Lincoln. Everything bad that has happened over the last 14 months is a completely self-inflicted wound. Joe Biden is the Kurt Cobain of politics. He put a shotgun in the mouth of the American body politic and then pulled the trigger. And the brains are on the wall. Okay, this is... The president of the United States is really, really bad at this. And because he is so bad at this, he has to just lie to you. He has to explain to you, actually, everything is fine. Everything is perfectly good. Not only that, we've done an incredible job. So the president starts talking about COVID-19. Here we go. Kurt Cobain. He referenced Kurt Cobain. That's, we know Zoomers aren't watching him because Zoomers would be like, Kurt, who? <laughs> what are you talking about? He's obviously got like a Gen X y audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kurt Cobain is more Gen X, even, even the millennials. I mean, I know about him, but he was yeah. still, I was just before, you know, the Nirvana wave and stuff. Yeah, like even that. I was only in middle school when he yeah. killed so, himself. I love how yeah. he's referencing. He's like, I'm going to do a hip reference. <laughs> Bob Ross is a wonderful painter. Like, <laughs> That's that is a timeless comment, though. That's true. That he, is, that I, is I would buy one of his things if it didn't cost a quadrillion dollars. I mean, I think he's awesome. <laughs> um, I mean, this commentary is completely deranged. You know, the funny thing is he then goes and brings up COVID. I mean, Biden basically capitulated to the right on, See, on COVID in this. That's exactly the point I was going to make is that Biden's speech in his speech in no uncertain terms. He basically said, look, we got to move on from COVID. We got to move on from COVID. We but gotta... they can never take a win. Well, that, you know? that's the point. Is like, wait a second. <laughs> so he said we got to move on from COVID, which is what you've been begging him to do this entire time. And then you turn around and say, well, that's bad. But if he said the opposite thing, which is like, let's keep embracing restrictions, you would have went on your show and said that's bad. Yeah. So it, it's it, he could do nothing to win in your eyes. Like, there's nothing he could say that would appease you, Ben Shapiro, and make you it's say, also... you know what? He has a point there. And that's what yeah, I despise about I a lot of these right-wing commentators. Yeah. That's what I despise about Ben Shapiro. He never, ever, ever says credit where it's due. Ever. Right. Whereas, okay, me and Trump. Ready? Ask me what the best thing he, he ever What's did the was. the best thing Trump The First Step Act and pardoning Alice Johnson. Not that hard! Yeah. Axing TPP. Not that hard! Mm -hmm. Like, Guys, I despise Donald Trump with every fiber of my being. I could find like a handful of things where I'm like, you know what? All right, on that one, credit. He cannot do that with Joe Biden because he's just a hack. He's just a partisan hack. It's also for someone who like fancies himself a real intellectual, you know, it's so uh it's so disingenuous and wildly unfair to say everything that happens on any president's watch is 100% them. I mean, Joe Biden didn't invent coronavirus or create the Omicron variant, right? There are things that were certainly out of his control. So you have to grant that. And then you ha can critique like he should have done X and she he should have done Y. And I'm glad to see that he's finally listening to us on this and it's way too late. But to say that, like, he's some omniscient, like, all-powerful 
person who has control over every single thing that happened. That's just silly. And I don't think anyone really thinks that way. So his point is he's like Kurt Cobain, meaning like what? He's committing national suicide or doing like self-harm to the nation. Well, I got news for you, Ben. What would I consider self-harm to the nation? I don't know, maybe continuing our endless wars like Donald Trump did, maybe doing corporate tax cuts and doing tax cuts for the rich like Donald Trump did, maybe not passing passing an infrastructure bill, thereby letting our infrastructure continue to crumble. That seems like self-harm to the nation. Exactly what Donald Trump did. He didn't get an infrastructure bill passed. So, you know, look, I, I think the whole conversation is ridiculous to talk about what he's like committing national suicide. But uh, if we're going to talk about harm to the nation done, I mean, I would definitely put a number of things squarely on Donald Trump's plate on that point. And unlike Ben, I'm willing to give credit where it's due and I'm willing to criticize where it's reasonable. All he has is just nothing but anger and vitriol and hatred. So, and it's so predictable and it's not how it, I don't know how anybody likes it. I don't yeah. know how anybody watches that and they think, oh, this is intelligent. This is the other thing on the the COVID piece and full disclosure. I don't know what the the whole you know narrative of Ben Shapiro's COVID discourse has been, but I have seen this narrative out of the right recently. That's like, oh, now that they see the polling, that suddenly the science polling has doesn't changed. even line up with that. Though. And listen, if it's if we're talking about public health officials, that's fine. They should not be looking at the polling. They shouldn't be changing their opinions based on public sentiment. But when you're talking about politicians. The whole thing of like they should be responsive to the public. It's a problem when they're not responsive to the public. So the the idea that, oh, they're cha- they're just changing because the public wants them to. It's like, well, that's kind of like the way that democracies are supposed to work. That's right. And I'm actually trying to look up now as I'm talking to you, because I brought this up yesterday when we mm-hmm. were uh, talking to Zed Jelani on our live coverage of the State of the Union address. Um, I believe the number was 56% or 58% of the American people still want some COVID restrictions like mask mandates indoors. Yeah. So even this this narrative of like, oh, they're just shifting with the polls, that's not even true. They're not shifting with the polls. What they're doing is they're shifting with a vocal, loud minority that's very insistent that we got to scrap all these restrictions. And they're going, you know what, I guess I kind of agree with that minority and they're going with it. But to your point, even if the polls did shift and they followed it, that's, I mean, it's better for a politician to follow public opinion yeah, on most pro- issues than not. Like, right. that's called democracy. Right. A lot of times the problem is the opposite, that public opinion is, like, very strongly in favor of, for example, banning members of Congress from trading stocks. And they're just like, nope, eh, we're not going to do that. We nope. know you want it. We're not going to do it. On the po- the politics, I think, may- the polling still, you're right, majority are in favor of some level of restrictions like indoor mass mandates and things like that. I think the politics have shifted, though, in that the people who actually vote on the issue are the one are more likely to be the ones who are very, very against any sort of restrictions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I mean, just as a political matter, too, it makes some sense to kind of take a win and say, hey, we're, we're getting past this thing and things are getting back to normal. The only downside with that is that you still have about eighteen hundred deaths a day, which is a lot of deaths. Yeah. But who so are those? Who are those people? They're, they're largely overwhelmingly unvaccinated and older. And I mean, look, <laughs> the, the, the right has honestly taken partaken in killing off their own voting base in many respects, because you have a lot of very old people who have or who are immunocompromised and they decided not to get vaccinated and they're croaking. And like, at what point does that sort of actually have an effect on an election? I don't know, but it might be a decent amount. I know. I've thought about that as well, because I mean, we have a million people who have died from this thing. It's horrible, you know, it really is. And yeah, um, I, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never get over the, the callousness that that's been treated with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's also at a certain point where you have to ask yourself, you know, how many how, how far are we going to go to protect people that aren't just doing the very basics to protect themselves? 
And so I think it makes it a very different moral question when you have 1,800 people dying, which is still a horrible number. But when that population are people who had the chance to protect themselves and didn't do it versus when it's just an indiscriminate killer. I know? think that's a fair point. And I also think I, I largely consider myself part of the group which has been called vaxxed and relaxed. Yeah, same. I really think mm-hmm. that that's kind of the category I fall into where, look, I've seen the studies. I've looked at the numbers. I, we still have over a 90 percent protection from severe illness, hospitalization or death if we get COVID. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, me, sometimes I'll wear a mask indoors. Sometimes I won't. But like I said, I know that I'm vaccinated and I all the numbers show I'll probably be OK. Young guy, don't have very many comorbidities, if any. Right. And so and, and I don't think that makes me a dick. And I don't think your point makes you a dick when you say, look, the people who are largely dying are older and unvaccinated. And we everybody's been trying to tell them for the longest time, look, this is for your own good. You want to do this This is going to keep you out of the hospital is going to keep you safe. And if you chose at this very late date to do it when the vaccine's free and you still have chosen at this very late date, you don't want to do it. It's a little personal responsibility, conservative narrative for you. One other thing that I wanted to ask you, Kyle, is um, do you think that we're sort of reaching the end of the covid culture wars? Because you do have Biden in this very declarative way in the State of the Union, basically signaling to Democrats and the liberal base, like, we're moving on. Businesses need to be open and schools need to be open. You also have, um, you know, I think as a sign of the times, like the trucker convoy that was supposed to make it here and like in an echo of the Canadian trucker convoy, it either completely fizzled out or came very closely to completely fizzling out. There was nobody here for the State of the Union, for example, so it seems like we may be moving past the COVID culture wars, barring another development, a new variant or something of the like. Well, I was starting to feel like the COVID culture wars were shadow boxing from both sides. Like the only people who, who were still yelling about it from the extreme perspectives were mm-hmm. online, where you talk to anybody in real life and everybody's sort of a normie and they have everybody's some relaxed views. About it. Yeah. They have some views that are maybe pro some restrictions and some views that are anti-restrictions, but everybody's sort of a normie floating somewhere in the reasonable portion of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but all the yelling you hear is online. Yeah. So I think I think the COVID, COVID culture wars are over unless we get a new variant, in which case we're, we're right back to square one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people who are more on the pro-restriction side will turn around and be like, we told you fucking idiots, you're letting this thing spread like nobody's business, like wildfire. Of course, there's going to be mutations. And of course, there's going to be another variant. We're on our third variant right now. Yeah, but the the real thing we need to do to stop any additional variants has nothing to do with our own population and everything to do with patents and making sure that the entire global south has access to the vaccines that we've had access to for so long now. That's very true. Yeah. Um, one last very important topic. So, you know, look, I said we want to lighten it up a little bit and it this is lighter than nuclear annihilation, mm-hmm. but this still isn't that light. Gruesome. Because it's actually super disturbing. So uh, I'm reading from BuzzFeed News here. They say support and concern for Pete Davidson is at an all time high after Kanye West's new music video showed him being kidnapped, decapitated and buried alive by the rapper. And then the subheadline is Ye's new music video, which boasts the message. Everyone lived happily ever after except Skeet. Skeet is what he calls Pete. Mm-hmm. I hate to laugh at that in a moment like this because this is totally unfair <laughs> to Pete Davidson, but yeah. Skeet is hilarious. Anyway, uh, was released just hours after Kim Kardashian was declared legally single in court. So as soon as their divorce was finalized and was this official, released. he releases this, which is like sort of like an overt threat to Pete Davidson, who's now dating Kim Kardashian, of course. As yeah. As everybody knows. Well, and I'm sure that this was like, 
I'm sure there was massive settlement of resources and kid custody and all this right. in, mm-hmm. entailed in this court settlement. So I also don't think from a legal perspective that it's an accident that this like very disturbing, threatening video comes out after that's kind of all done and settled. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been following this very much more closely than we normally follow pop culture stuff. I've been watching the Kanye documentary as well, which is interesting. I think for me, it's partly because I was like a, you know, Kanye fan at the very beginning. And now, I mean, I don't really connect with or like his music at all. And then you watch this behavior that just is completely bizarre and spiraling and has now moved into the realm of just being like overtly disturbing and threatening. It's hard to watch. Start at the beginning, though. So we watched, we only seen two of the three episodes that are out as of the recording of this, Mm -hmm. what we're doing right now. Um, What is your take on Kanye, young Kanye and on the come up? Like, what do you make of him as a person? Do you like him? What are the characteristics that shine through? The thing that comes across in the documentary is that, you know, he's an artist who had a very particular vision that was really not represented in the rap industry at the time. It was Rockefeller Records and mm-hmm. Daisy and Dame Dash, and it was all, all more were like gangstery. Yeah. Not and, full gangster, but it, all money, money, money. Yeah. Women, I mean, women, women. Exactly. And and he had a very different conception of speaking to this, you know, College Dropout is his first mm-hmm. album, right? And he's talking about things that are very vulnerable, talking mm-hmm. about being self-conscious and being addicted to consumerism and it's political and I think vulnerable is the word that I would really use, which not only takes courage for any artist or any person to display, um, but I think especially a black man who's supposed to be this ideal of like macho toughness Mm -hmm. um, at a time when that hadn't been done. And you really have to admire him in the documentary for even though he's he's in some ways like hitting his head against a wall because he doesn't fit into the genre as it currently exists. He doesn't bend like he sticks with that vision. Right. And he he, you know, does whatever he can and eventually breaks through with it, of course, it becomes this massive star. And then the other thing that really came through to me is there are these couple of moments when people who like his mother mm-hmm. um, or Pharrell, uh, Pharrell yeah. mm-hmm, s- sort of see in him like both the incredible promise and also the perils of some of the like, you know, you have to stay true to what you are right now and don't get don't let it get to your head. Don't let it get to your head. And you have to have swagger and ego, but you can float. I think his mom said something like you can float while staying on the ground. Mm. And um, it seemed like a little bit of a, a preview of of ultimately what was to come for him. And knowing that the trajectory, at least somewhat from there to where we are now. Yeah, it's it is sad and a cultural figure like that who has meant so much, I think, to so many people and who felt themselves represented with his music in a way that they really never had before. I, it does strike me as a loss. Yeah. So the the thing that I got from as much of as we've seen in the documentary so far is that he has the qualities of stick and persistence. I mean, he just keeps showing up. He keeps showing up. Yeah. He gets knocked down on the ground. He gets told no. He gets put off by Rockefeller for releasing his record a whole bunch of times. And time. basically made to look ridiculous, right? And they're just like, just stay in the background and do the beats for us. Yeah. You know? He's like, I'm going to do the music the way I want to do the music. He funded uh, The Wire, the music video, on with his buddy just recording it. They did it on their own. They went to MTV After Hours and edited it on the equipment. They weren't getting any help. They weren't getting any funding on that yeah. particular front. Mm-hmm. He was just a producer and they wanted to keep him in that box. And so that stick and persistence is something I highly respect 
and I relate to it because I was talking to myself for the first year or two of my show. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Kanye, but uh, you know, when you feel like there there are no allies, there is no help, and you're on your own, but there is no other option to you. You're like, I'm just going to keep showing up. I'm just going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and then eventually somebody's going to notice and people are going to recognize, and then eventually if you build it, they will come. That was the mindset, yeah. and that was that were were positive characteristics of his that were very admirable. Um, now. Now I'll say the stuff that's controversial. So I was never really a, a, a big Kanye stan. Mm. I, I liked, you know, I liked some of his music early on. I love The Wire. I think that's a great song. I love Slow Jams. I think that's a great song. But I was never a Kanye stan. Mm. It never spoke to me in the same way it spoke to other people. Um, and I, oh, at a certain point, I started uh, getting actively really frustrated and annoyed with the people who insist that no matter what Kanye does, he's just a genius. Mm. Let me explain something to you guys. What you are currently witnessing with Kanye West is mental illness, like serious mental illness. And I'm not trying to say this as like a burn or an own or whatever. I'm saying it out of like genuine concern for the guy seeing what's going on. He absolutely has probably severe bipolar disorder, you know, something along those lines. Um, and I, I, the, the Kanye stands who will defend him no matter what he does. I mean, when he he ran for president and got like three votes yeah. and he was like crying and, and talking on stage about how he wanted to abort his own daughter and how he was an asshole for wanting to do that. And of course, Kim was pissed off when he did that. Yeah, like, what are you disclo doing? Not disclosing his own seekers, but disclosing her most private moments. You then know? you get the what he what did he say when you're talking to TMZ, like slavery was a choice or something. It was like a state of mind. He said some shit like that. Yeah. He went full pro Trump and was rambling like a madman in the Oval Office for like an hour, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and the circus around him and the media around him, I mean, they get entertainment value out of it. But this is a guy who has issues. And, I, you know, maybe this is controversial, too. I don't know. I'll say it anyway. But I remember when Snoop Dogg was asked, what, do you, what the hell do you think is wrong with Kanye? And he was like, look, he has no strong black women in his life to keep his ass in line and to say, you better get your shit together. And it, it's manifesting. I mean, he's just he's all over the place. And it looks to me like severe mental illness. If you're going to record a music video of you beheading well and here's kidnapping, the thing and and that's where you ask like who's enabling this like who who is like yeah this is this is who's who is failing to have an intervention and say you can't do this well, you shouldn't I, do this this is what i'm trying to say i think like the media that sort of aids and abets this because they like the circus the kanye stands who oh no matter what he does they're like you're a genius at some point like no at some point you're just having a deranged meltdown and you need help you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I've had conversations with very intelligent people when Kanye was clearly in the middle of a manic episode. Like, he's just a genius. Here's the other question that I have that I wonder what you think about. Um, like, first of all, I think there's a lot to be said about the people who are around him, enabling him, who, you know, are trying to be close to a star. They don't want to, they just want to be yes men and women. They want to, you know, they're media figures who want to sort of benefit from whatever circus he's creating. So very clear how we should feel about those people. What agency does he have in this situation, given that he does seem to be suffering from some form of mental illness? Um, so that's actually a very difficult question to answer because, I mean, that's the whole thing about mental illness, right? If you're, if, if it's mental illness, then it almost, takes away your agency because you're purely acting off of like impulse and there's not much control over what you're doing. And he look, he's acting like a guy who doesn't have control, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, obviously the video is premeditated and thought about it and this is what I'm going to do or whatever, but to go down that path and actually execute that 
is you're clearly not in, in too much control here. But look, his biggest failing, uh, and this you can put on him, is, and this happens with a lot of people who are severely mentally ill. My grandmother was what they used to call manic depressive, what they now call bipolar. And so I saw some of this stuff firsthand, but not much because I was young at the time. But my, my sister probably saw more. My mom saw a lot of it. My dad, of course, as well. Um, a lot of times they don't want to take their medicine. And there is medicine that absolutely helps and stops these extreme symptoms and these manic episodes and this acting totally irrationally and impulsively. But they don't want to take their medicine. And the reason they don't want to take their medicine is because they feel like it's dulling my existence and taking away the thing that makes me a genius, that makes mm -hmm. me special, that makes me unique, that makes yeah. me important. And the fact of the matter is, that's not true. It's taking away the mania. It's taking away the, the mental illness. It's And there are other you know side effects that oftentimes come along with whatever it is, antipsychotic drugs or anti-anxiety drugs or a mix of the two or other things. Um, and it could be, you know, you can't stop eating and you gain weight. And I think that's one thing Kanye even cited is like, this is why I didn't want to take it. Oh, really? This. Yeah, I think so. He blew up at one point. I think he commented on like, you know, I didn't want to take it. And well, Freddie DeBoer talked to us about Freddie DeBoer talked to us about thing. that as well. Yeah. But look, Freddie said it too. He's like, you just got to, you got to fucking shut up and take it. You have to do it because it's not just about you. Now this is about, I mean, him, him and Kim, they have a kid, right? They have a kid and you know, she's with Pete now and he's threatening Pete. Like this is shit. If he if his name wasn't Kanye West and he was some random dude, they would probably be like the cops would be knocking on his door. Like, what the fuck are you doing? That is a good point. You know? Yeah. So I'm just well, and it, it's all all of that is exacerbated by having so many people around you and in society who are telling you, who are reinforcing that yes, these these behaviors are the acts of a genius, and you know, don't let them shut you down. The, ironically, those are the people I'm most mad at. I'm actually less mad at Kanye because I do think that when you're in a manic state and when you're mentally ill, you really can't control your actions very much. What I mean, do you, you can think control about it enough to take a fucking pill, right? But you can't control it to all the other things that you do. So I'm mad at the Kanye, the people who embolden Kanye. Yeah, and enable. What do you think about the uh, argument that, well, we can't feel too bad for Kim because she was just using him for like fame and her own Total reasons. Bullshit. Total bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Like, you know... She, it's natural to want to, you know, date somebody and uh, be around somebody and be intimate with somebody who you view at like there's not a massive power differential mm -hmm. where one person is super famous and the other one's not. Like you can relate to somebody if if they're more on the same plane as you in that respect. So you know she dated she dated Ray J in the past. He was also a fucking psycho, by the way. Was he? Oh, he released a music video it. afterwards titled i hit it first <laughs> and where he would sing about like you know yeah and in the music video there's a girl who looks exactly like him i mean it was That's you know fucking so she's picked too. the fucking winners <laughs> at some point pete davidson is gonna do some weird i mean he look at him he's already weird as fuck but he's probably gonna get even weirder he seems a um, lot less weird than kanye uh, he seems a lot more even you could pick a random dude off the street and they'd be yeah. <laughs> way more yeah than well and even if you hate kim like pete certainly didn't doesn't deserve who, any of this i'm this I, of course insane. but who like at this late date who even hates kim kim was directly involved in getting alice johnson out of prison like alice johnson mm -hmm. was the poor woman sweet like oh, grandmotherly I, I woman interviewed her and it was one of them she's one of the most beautiful people i've ever and she met was locked up for so long for years for and years and years I mean, for some insane. stupid drug thing she had no idea what was even going on what it was even about yeah i think she like i wish i could remember the details it was like she placed a phone call i mean it was something like so incredibly trivial and right. she gets locked up for life yeah i mean disliking kim at this 
like that's so I feel like that's so five years ago, ten years ago, whatever, you know, like now it's just like she's a part of the the cultural lexicon or whatever. Yeah. And you either feel neutral and agnostic towards her or you like her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, revealing the text messages. Oh, that's. Even the like the, the creepy love bombing of like sending the truck full of roses and the trying to buy the house next to her and that all that classic stuff. Classic manipulative narcissistic moves there. Yeah. That's what that is. You know, if you and this is why I say it's definitely mental illness. If you're fundamentally incapable of you know noticing the signs. So there were obviously like 849 signs to Kanye, like I don't like this before he sent a truck with a bed full of roses to her. So that's more, it's just, it's not just like, you know, he's not making the right decisions. It's like he's incapable of making the right decisions because he's in a manic episode. And so he needs the medicine. He needs a support system around him that's going to make sure he takes the medicine. And then, by the way, I got news for you. My guess is, based off how Kanye has been acting when he's not on his medicine, if he were to be back on the medicine, he would start dropping bangers again. He would start dropping songs like The Wire again. Everybody would be like, I like this a lot. Yeah. But he's not on the meds. And what was the song that he released? He just said the name of his mother over and over and over and yeah. over and over. It was like... Well, that's the other thing that people say is he sort of spiraled after she passed. The Snoop Dogg point. He doesn't have a strong black woman in his life to keep him in line. I mean, yeah. that's... And, and, and she, she is a beautiful person. Based oh, on yeah. The documentary. They, oh, in my the God. documentary, not only is she a beautiful person, you see how much... You see the closeness of that relationship. You see how much she's able to kind of keep him together and how much he looks to her for that kind of guidance. So I, th that does make sense to she me. She is the most motherly mother. She's such a beautiful just person. Just so encouraging. You, just, you know, and... you just feel safe and comfy when she's in the room. Like, you're such a sweet person who's just yeah. looking out for everybody's best interest. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, I mean, you lose a force like that. I mean, obviously, he was, she was the biggest force for him. He was so close with her. Yeah. That, you know, he sort of spiraled out of control a little bit. Came like, unmoored. Yeah. And so now, I mean, I feel bad for him. He's isolated. He's lonely. But you're going through a manic episode and you have psychological illness and you really need help and he should take medicine. And, you know, if he were to be on medicine and stay on it for an extended period of time, he would look at the things that he's doing now in retrospect and be like, oh, my God. Yeah. What have mm -hmm. I done for the world to see this total meltdown? And for this, the people so, that I supposedly care the most about and the pain that I've put them through. So for the love of God, I don't I don't want to hear any of the enablers out there because you guys are the worst of the worst. It, they really are the people who still insist, no, this is all genius. This is all beautiful. or This is all fun trolling. Yeah, it's not. No, when you're decapitating somebody and burying them and Where threatening. The and I mean, come on, man. It's obvious. It goes without saying. All right. Let's make an extraordinarily hard turn <laughs> because um, we brought Matt Duss on. He's Bernie Sanders um, foreign policy advisor. I think he has been we're going to talk after uh, the interview with him, but it's very hard to find people who have a nuanced and um, even handed approach to this crisis. Uh, and obviously a sort of progressive internationalist view. I think Matt has been one of those wonderful voices. So we are excited to talk to him and we will do that now. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, let's just start with what is your assessment of where things stand today and your best guess as to what Putin's ultimate objective is, both in Ukraine and more broadly? Well, where we are today is, you know, as, as many people know, I mean, the invasion started in earnest a week ago uh, last night. Um, American time. 
um, Putin had already put more more Russian troops into the kind of independent uh, regions of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, this all really kind of was kicked off by him recognizing the independence of these two Ukrainian regions and uh, providing or trying or trying to provide a legal pretext from the Russian standpoint of going into these regions to protect uh, ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking citizens. Um, in terms of what Putin's ultimate goals are, I mean, he laid them out himself in a speech ahead of this invasion, um, and they are fairly expansive. I mean, they echo things that he has said and written in the past, um, including an article and, uh, you know, a quote-unquote historical article that he published, I think it was last July, um, making the case that, he, you know, Ukraine is not a real country, uh, that Ukrainians are not a, a separate people from Russians, they are not a real nationality, they're simply a part of Russia. Um, that's part of the broader sort of historical justification that he's offered for taking back Ukraine for the Russian Imperium as he sees it. Um, and those are pretty expansive goals. So I think some of the questions I have and others have is having laid out these goals, um, ultimately what, you know, he, he seems to have left himself very few off-ramps right. um, short of conquering Ukraine. And then who knows what's what's next. And that is uh, concerning because the goal here is is to find some way to get to a ceasefire, to de-escalate this and stop stop this war. Well, and do you think there are broader goals beyond you, just Ukraine? Just Ukraine. Right. I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to say now he does seem, and again, I think it's important to kind of take him at his word. He has uh, painted a picture of not even restoring the Soviet, the, uh, excuse me, the, so yeah, the Soviet Union. It's restoring what he sees as kind of a pre-Soviet, mm -hmm. you know, what some have called the, so the Russian Imperium. Um, which is just a, a, a in, you know, which included Finland, included the Baltic states. Um, so I don't want to suggest that he will then move on them, but I, given what he has laid out, I don't think it's um, out of the question. What struck me in the speech that he gave when he was declaring the quote-unquote peacekeeping mission is that about half the speech was what we've always heard, which is, you know, NATO expansion is a threat to us, and so we feel like this is defensive. But then the other half of the, the speech was very blood and soil. Mm -hmm. The idea was like, like you said, um, Ukrainians owe us. Ukraine is kind of a fake state. My predecessors were too lenient in the Soviet Union when they let uh, Ukraine leave of their own volition with no consequences whatsoever. Of course, you had uh, natural gas that was found in Ukraine and Crimea in 2012, and then in 2014, he invaded into Crimea. Mm -hmm. What I want to do, what I want to ask you is this. I'm going to present for you first the, like, the far left argument on this front and have you poke holes in it. Then after that, I want to do the far right one. But the far left argument goes like this. Um, NATO expanded to Russia's doorstep, to their border, and they did it, uh, there were a number of, what was it, four or five different times since the fall of the Soviet Union that they've expanded more and more and more. The last time Putin in invaded Georgia was right after there was basically like an invitation from the, the West for Georgia to come into NATO. So it was, there was like a direct connection between it there. Um, the other point that they make is uh, there was a 2014 coup where Yanukovych was replaced with, you know, a Western-aligned leader. So in a sense, it's not, it's trying to restore the country in some sense back to what it was before a Western coup. This is an argument you hear. And another thing you hear is in the Donbass region in particular, there were attacks against uh, ethnic Russians by ethnic Ukrainians, where you have about 80% of the civilians are ethnic Russians who were killed. So the idea of declaring independence is, is not maybe as crazy as it seems uh, at first glance, because they feel like maybe they're being defensive and they want to uh, protect themselves. So how do you respond to those arguments? Is there a grain of truth in any of it, or is it all just revisionist and, and over-defensive of Putin and his goals? 
No, I think there is a grain of truth, truth to each of those things, and I think it's important to recognize that. First, with regard to NATO expansion, um, I think you know over the past 30 years, um, we can see evidence from U.S. officials who've acknowledged the concerns being expressed by Russian officials and Russian politicians and people in the Russian system that they are very concerned about NATO expanding closer and closer to their borders. I think that is easy to understand. NATO was a defensive, is a defensive alliance that was conceived for the goal of confronting the Soviet Union. Um, so again, it's not something that Putin just invented yesterday or recently. I mean, this is something you know that U.S. officials, including former Clinton Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, has acknowledged. Something that uh, former U.S. diplomat and now current CIA Director Bill Burns has acknowledged uh, in his book and elsewhere um, at various times in the past 30 years. Um, so th that is a source of, let's say, discomfort and, and grievance on the part of, um, of Russia, the Russian political system. Um, as to the, uh, the 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 point that you made about um, the the two regions, and that, yeah, right? And I, I I didn't want to skip over anything, mm -hmm. so I'll come back to that that other point. Um, yeah, I mean, going back um, even before the Soviet Union, I mean, this is a large coal and steel producing region. There are a lot of Russians who moved into Ukraine to work in those industries. There's a lot of Russian speakers. The farther east you get in Ukraine, and ethnic Russians. Um, there are some who would prefer to be much closer to Russia than part of Ukraine. I mean, that is true. I think there is a way to manage this politically and democratically that is not invading and seizing these regions. Um, and ultimately, I, I would hope that the way to deal with people who have different visions through their country would be to promote a kind of more pluralistic democratic Ukraine. And I know there are many Ukrainians who have that vision for their country as well. So, so the right-wing argument, the, the far-right argument, let's say the neoconservative viewpoint here in the U.S. is like, all you guys are, are super naive. The fact of the matter is he has his own imperial ambitions. The part about NATO in his speech was just pure cover. It was the cover story for the first half of the speech, which was blood and soil. We feel mm. like we have a right to Ukraine. And the fact of the matter is, this is what somebody on the far right would say, he's Hitler. Like, And I went back, I watched a documentary on Hitler the other day, and Hitler was, as he took the Sudetenland and, and kept spreading further and further as he was doing that he was also simultaneously giving speeches where he was pretending mm -hmm. like hey man I'm, i actually want peace i want peace right. with my neighbors and everything that i'm doing here has nothing to do with me being aggressive and me being offensive and so you know the argument is well if we don't uh, try to stop him now when do we try to stop him and do you buy the idea that his ambitions maybe go beyond just ukraine beyond just pieces of uh post-Soviet buffer states that he can chip off, but even like to reconstitute some semblance of the Soviet Union yeah. border-wise or even further. Do you do you think there's any merit to that or do you think that's maybe too hyperbolic? Um, well, I, I would first start by saying I think there are elements of the of the right that say that. There are also elements of the right that say, yes, that's the kind of leader we want here. Right. <laughs> um, um, clearly. But no, I think there are some um, on, on the more hawkish right that make those kind of claims, and they often make these kinds of claims whoever of whoever the adversary is right. um, at the moment. That doesn't mean it's never true. Um, as I said, I think um, the kind of vision that Putin himself laid out in that speech is worth looking at very closely. Uh, we we should listen to what these leaders say about what their plans are. It's almost like, you know, I don't want to I want to, don't want to treat this as you know a comic book, but like that was like a supervillain monologue of like here's what I'm going to do. And clearly he thought he was in very good shape to accomplish it because we know that's when the supervillain gives the speech when he feels like everything's all set. Um, as we see, the plan is not going very well. Um, this this is a it's a much slower invasion than I think it's clear he envisioned and his commanders envisioned. Um, so even while we consider what his ultimate goals and aims are, 
I think just, you know, the, the very, very poor performance of the Russian military right now uh, might be, a, you know, a piece of evidence in favor of not treating this as, you know, the new Nazi invasion. This mm. is, is, is not that. That's an interesting point. So almost on like incompetence ground, you're saying maybe right. it's not really analogous to the Nazis. It's not, lack of public support. That is very important, too. I would just I, w- I want to come to that because that's very important. But I'll just say in terms of their military capability, I think, you know, as is often the case, and including very fam- familiar recent cases here in the in the United States, like this was conceived as a an expression of the, the extent of Russian power. But it is uh, showing only the limits of that power. Mm. Hmm. So what is your sense of uh, where sort of Russian public sentiment is? Because obviously it's very hard to tell from the outside, but you have had thousands of people courageously protesting and thousands also getting arrested. You have them clearly cracking down on any semblance of independent media. You have reports of these sort of like extraordinarily draconian laws up to including potentially martial law. Clearly, those are all indications that they are a bit unsettled with how their own population is receiving that. So what is your sense of how the Russian public is um, taking in all of these events? Right. No, as you said, I mean, they are, you know, this is already a, a pretty closed society um, with not a lot of uh, free speech. Um, they've, they've taken steps just in the past few weeks, like I saw just a few days ago, steps about public statements or on social media, statements that are critical of the war effort that could get you thrown in prison. For 15 years, I think, was the number I saw. Yeah, that's a a pretty serious uh, stay. Mm -hmm. Um, But even giving that, you still have hundreds uh, and thousands um, of protesters being arrested. Um, Over last weekend, I think it was well over 1,500 protests in, I think, some 50 cities, if not more. Uh, Given the situation that everyone well knows what the consequences are for those kinds of protests, that I think that, you know, as my boss has said, Senator Sanders has said, that deserves enormous praise Mm -hmm. and admiration. Um, You have, um, you know, a Russian uh, dissident uh, Putin critic, Alexei Navalny, uh, from prison making a call for more Russians to come to the streets and protest. He knows what that means. He is paying the cost for that right now himself personally. Um, And I will say, as we look at some of the things that could turn this around, obviously we've seen a range of very serious sanctions already imposed on Russia, on Putin and on the oligarchs, on Russian banks. there are questions of how this will impact his behavior, how this will impact his thinking, if it will. But I do think that the more we see from Russians themselves just basically calling BS on his his claims of I am here to defend you, I am here, this is my grand vision of, of the new Russian empire, um, I think that is something that could make a difference. What is your opinion on the sanctions? Because... There's actually a New York Times report today about sort of like trying to suss this question out of how the Russian public is feeling. And they have this line in here that says there's also evidence that even though the war took a lot of Russians by surprise, significant numbers had come to accept it as unavoidable or forced upon Russia by an aggressive NATO. And the economic crisis touched off by the West's harsh sanctions reinforced that narrative for some. We have engaged in... Um, historically, you know, aggressive sort of economic sanctions here. We've Mm. never sanctioned a G20 central Mm. bank. Um, The removal from SWIFT combined with that is obviously, you know, pretty extraordinary. And uh, I think it was the French finance minister that came out and said, we're trying to crash their economy. That is going to hit way more than just the oligarchs and Putin. Mm. Innocent Russian civilians who are in many times bravely protesting in the streets are also going to be devastated by those sanctions. So there's the moral question, but there's also the tactical and strategic question. Is there a possibility that this hardens public op- 
public opposition to our position, right? And mm -hmm. makes people more have an more animosity to what we're doing. And does it also potentially have the impact of sort of backing Putin into a corner where he doesn't view this as, oh, this is a peaceful reaction to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. He views these economic measures as in and of themselves an aggressive act of war. Right. Does that potentially further escalate the situation? Yeah. I mean, those are all very, very important questions. I mean, first, um, as to the impact of these sanctions, you're right, they are going to be felt uh, by Russian working people. Um, when you you're already seeing runs on banks, people, you know, frantically trying to withdraw their rubles from the bank and, and being unable to do so. Um, and let's also understand that Putin's argument from the very beginning, let's understand when Putin came to power in the late 90s, he did so after several years of neoliberal shock therapy, mm. uh, um, which in, in fact gave rise to these oligarchs in the first place. So right. We need to understand this history um, when, you know, a lot of U.S. trained economists went in and said, well, let's just, you know, we're going to take apart the communist system and we're going to essentially auction off uh, elements of the people's property. Um, and we all know what happened. And people probably know this was not the first time that the U.S. ran this plan uh, on a country and ended up with an authoritarian outcome. Um, but just going back to Putin, his argument has always been there is chaos now. I will deliver order. It mm. may not be total freedom. It may not be luxury, but I will deliver order and stability. And that's been a key part of the argument that he's made. Now, I do think if these sanctions, as they very likely seem to impose enormous hardship, there will people, he will continue to make that argument. It's, I am the one who's standing up for you and the West hates us. Um, I'm the one you can depend on. But I think it's, this is why it's really important for the United States and, his, and its allies, as President Biden and his team have been doing, which is to say, we are seeking diplomacy. We are continuing to engage. The Ukrainians are continuing to try. They are meeting with the Russians. I think they may have already done so a second time on the Belarus border to make it clear that Putin is the one who is refusing diplomacy. And that won't convince everyone, but I think that is something very important just in its own right, because we absolutely do want to seek, to seek a diplomatic resolution, a ceasefire, an end to this, these, these shellings. But it also is important for the Russian people to see that as what's going on. On as well. So what do you make of how Biden has handled this so far? Because from my perspective, I see whether it's the media or his own staffers, there's a constant pressure from his right saying, look, you're not doing enough. You got to be more aggressive. And you got Adam Kinzinger on Twitter saying do a no fly zone. You mm. got, you know, the media prodding from that angle where now even Jen Psaki, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden are the doves in the conversation <laughs> where they're like, look, that's sort of crazy. And that's direct military yeah. confrontation yeah. with another nuclear armed power. That's World War Three. We're talking about there. So they're like pump the brakes on that. But the difficult thing for Biden is he has to find a way to deter without escalating. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard line to walk. And so, you know, from my perspective, I said there's not a single uh, sanction on the books I wouldn't throw at Putin or the oligarchs to try to, uh, you know, crack down on them. But anything that goes after the civilians does have uh, unintended consequences and that it could backfire. And then also from the moral perspective, like you said, that's a big issue. I mean, we're 0 for 9 when it comes to these crippling sanctions yeah. and having people turn on their governments, whether it's right. Venezuela, uh, you know, Cuba, Iran or whatever. So what do you think of how Biden walked that line? Because I think he's done an OK job, maybe better than I expected, but still not great. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think first on what you said, about, I mean, always in Washington, you're going to have pressure from the right. And, you know, you have all these columnists and, you know, some members of Congress for whom the argument is always escalation. Uh, we need to escalate. We need to be stronger. Gotta be and, tougher. and if that do doesn't more. work, then obviously it just means we weren't tough enough. Right. And we didn't escalate enough. It's just this unfalsifiable argument. Um, but I, I, I do think that the Biden team and the president himself made some very important steps early on. One was taking troops off the table. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, I, and 
in addition to making a very strong effort with allies to try and avert this diplomatically. You know, I think what we saw uh, both from the administration, but especially from European allies, mm -hmm. such as, you know, French President Macron and um, German Chancellor Scholz, going over and sitting with Putin at his long table uh, for hours long meetings separately and then coming out and putting a lot of these issues on the table, saying specifically, you know, not committing that Ukraine would not join NATO, but saying NATO and Ukraine together just to send the message that, okay, we're willing to talk and address these, 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 what, you know, what Putin is putting up as his grievances. Now your question of, will this, you know, will the pressure to escalate continue? It certainly will as you know, this is Washington, that's always the case, but I do think having, you know, they're doing a good job making clear the cost. Let's understand this is a nuclear armed state, the world's largest nuclear armed state. Um, and a no-fly zone, as much as some people might imagine this is a kind of invisible force field that we just press a button and put over a country, that is not how it works. This involves shooting down Russian planes, right. being in combat with Russia, being at war with Russia. Let me just ask, do you think it's uh, escalatory or unwise for Biden to do what he has done, which is, I think, deploy a few thousand NATO troops to NATO territory right next to you know, where the fighting is going on. Do you think that's unwise, escalatory, or do you think that's purely defensive and will be interpreted as such? I mean, from my point of view, I think it's 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 it's, it's a good move, both to reassure those allies and mm -hmm. for Putin to understand we have a defense alliance with NATO countries. It is a defense alliance. So you don't think it, they view it as escalatory? Um, they may view it as escalatory. They may be concerned about it. But in my, in my own view, this this is right. not the thing that made Putin's mind. It seems very clear that he had, you know, over 150,000 troops on the border yeah. of Ukraine already. Um, and I think just making clear that this alliance continues to stand together in the face of, the, face of this. I mean, listen, collective security, whatever one's view on the expansion of NATO is, and mm -hmm. I think there are certainly valid criticisms to make. And as I said, former U.S. officials have made them and continue to make them. But, you know, collective security is an important concept, I think, especially for, for progressives to think about. Um, so I think the steps that uh, President Biden has taken up until now are pretty good ones. But I would also say, you know, they did an enormous amount of work in the months and weeks leading up to this invasion just to coordinate with allies, to coordinate with the UN, coordinate in Europe and in Asia. Mm. Um, and they, they put some very serious sanctions on the board. So I think right now it's, it's watching to see what Putin's response will be. What do you make of China's posture in all of this um, and how they're sort of you know, neutrality slash mm. leaning towards the Russian side, hoping to help yeah. bolster the Russian wheat market, for example. What does this mean for broader geopolitics moving forward from this crisis? Right. No, I think the yeah, that's the 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 role of China here has been very interesting because you know a few weeks ago, or I guess it's a month or more now, you know there was you know Putin appeared with Xi and they put out this joint communique saying that their partnership would have no limits. Um, and everyone assumed at the time, and I think we do have some evidence now that partly what Xi wanted was to make sure that there would be no invasion before the end of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't want to suggest that everyone knows that there was some kind of deal made, um, but I think people surmise that at the time. I think we've also seen some interesting evidence that China was, was perhaps surprised at, at, at the timing of this, given that they, t they did not take certain steps with regard to their own citizens in Ukraine that one might expect mm. if they had forewarning. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think we have seen, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on the fact that the Biden administration had a series of very, very intense meetings with their Chinese counterparts, showing them the intelligence uh, that the United States had and trying to convince them that this thing was imminent, it was going to happen. So, you know, we initially saw some very, very soft statements from China with regard to the invasion. I think um, their their abstention um, from the, the UN resolutions is is important. I mean, in, given Ch China is a member of the permanent five members of the Security Council, and an abstention sends a very clear signal, perhaps not as strong as voting for the resolution. Right, but, but better uh, than voting, voting against, against it. Exactly right. <laughs> um, so do you fear that, because one of the things Crystal and I have talked about a number of times is that we're worried there is no off-ramp. Like, there appears to be, I'm trying to figure out potential ways this could unfold where there's some sort of de-escalation. And I, I struggle to think of even one scenario where that would work. And on the one hand, you know, people would say, if indeed Putin is thinking more along the lines of Hitler, like I have endless territorial expansion goals, then he's unappeasable by definition. And there's almost, you know, nothing you can do and there's no hope. But if he's not that, and if he has, uh, I don't want to sound flippant when I say this because it's terrible, but I'm just saying it empirically. Like if he has limited territorial expansion gains, then you also have the potential for some sort of de-escalation at some point. Mm -hmm. um, do you fear that there's not, not an off-ramp? And what do you think is the most likely scenario? Could the fighting just sort of continue like this, almost in like a stagnant state, but continuing forward? What do yeah, you think? I mean, unfortunately, I think that seems like a very possible scenario is mm. that, you know, even though the progress that the Russian army has made has been much slower than I think anybody expected, certainly the Russians, um, they have enormous amount of troops, enormous amount of equipment. Um, I'm not a military expert, but I would say, you know, the, the large consensus of military experts who I do read and talk to, I uh, think that eventually Russia will grind this out and they could very well just, you know, take Ukraine as is their plan. Um, and install, you know, a puppet government. Yanukovych um, again, you think? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's it's a good mm -hmm. question. Um, but it, the response to that, I think, as that goes on, as ugly it will will be, and you know, I you know, I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, I think we need to see continued efforts to 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 get a ceasefire, to to create humanitarian corridors, anything that could allow the provision of humanitarian aid. Um, certainly the United States and its partners should continue to do everything possible to help Ukrainian refugees who are already flooding out of the country. We have over a million already as of today. Uh, that's an enormous number for, for just, you know, just over a week. Um, so I think there, there are certainly things we can do uh, to make the situation better. As for how we end this war or what, what the next few weeks um, and months will bring, um, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned that we could see a situation like you described. What does all of this mean for our own sort of um, domestic policy? And to give you one specific example, obviously the fact that we're still dependent on fossil fuels mm -hmm. makes every, this is, you know, right. not civilian carnage, that's the worst impacts in being felt by Ukrainians, but, you know, American consumers are going to see gas prices continue to go up. They're already incredibly stretched. Um, you know, inflation has continued to spike. So what are some of the vulnerabilities here uh, that have been revealed mm -hmm. by this conflict. Right. Well, I, I, exactly as you said, I mean, Europe is extremely reliant on Russian energy. Um, you know, and that's a step they have not taken yet. You know, they've stopped the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but there's there's still a lot of gas and, and, and oil coming out of, of, of Russia that, that, that Europe uses. I mean, ultimately, this will impact the United States as well. I mean, energy is a global market, so we will feel this too. But I think it does 
get to the point. I mean, this is a moment if we are if we're ever going to be serious about moving to green energy. Um, this is the time. I mean, this is something Senator Sanders has said. I mean, no one wants to take we we should not and, and will not, um, you know, shift focus away from the Ukrainian people. But let's understand if we want to deny these authoritarian petrostates um, the revenues they require to rule. Um, we need to shift aggressively to renewables. And that's not just Putin. That's a, a, a lot of these authoritarian pesto states, some of which are our allies. Mm. Um, but ultimately, if we want to, if we really want to combat authoritarianism, um, that's something we should do. And by the way, it would also save the planet. So I think those are both pretty good reasons to it's do a nice that. side benefit yes. there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that's a great point, but I'm also reminded of what you told me the other night, which is that not only is there natural gas all over Ukraine, but apparently they have a huge deposit of lithium, yeah. which would be used in the electric cars, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like, okay, so the war goes from being about natural gas mm -hmm. to lithium. Wonderful, mm -hmm. you know? But for climate change reasons alone, it still makes sense to make mm -hmm. the transition. Yeah. So what, um, as a, the last question here, I mean, what are some of the scenarios that we should consider of how this plays out and how this ultimately ends? Well, I think for the time being, we need you know, obviously to continue to protect political space for a diplomatic resolution. Um, as we were talking about earlier, and, you know, there's a constant uh, push and pressure to be more hawkish, to escalate, to pile on more sanctions. Um, and sometimes that is the right answer, but re I, it, often it is not. Um, we have some very, very serious sanctions already in place. I think uh, Dan Dresner in the Washington Post wrote a very, very good piece a couple of days ago saying now is the time to kind of make sure we understand what we're trying to achieve here. What are the off ramps like connecting you know, means to ends in terms of these sanctions tools we're putting in place? Um, you know, and I think it's it's very easy and frankly political appealing for political leaders to constantly get out there and like beating their chest and saying we need to be stronger and stronger. But the focus here needs to be how do we protect human life most effectively? How do we stop uh, this war? Um, and and just focusing on that. Final final question: Do you fear that nuclear war is a possibility, even a two percent possibility, three percent possibility? Um. <laughs> I'll just say I'm thinking about it more than I was <laughs> right. maybe two weeks oh, ago. That's right. yeah. And um, I think that's, that's quite bad enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, if we take Putin at his word, as you've suggested, then mm -hmm. we all should be concerned. And obviously, even a very small possibility is one we should not tolerate. Yeah, that's right. Matt Dust, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. All right. So that was Matt Dust, Bernie's uh, foreign policy advisor. Um it was an interesting conversation, interesting back and forth. I find that you almost can't say enough about, you know, that macro question I asked. Here's the far left argument. Here's the far right argument about what's going on, who's to blame, how to fix it. Uh, it's almost you can't it's not possible in one conversation to get into all the nuances and the ins and outs of that. Um, let me just ask you. Do you think do you buy either narrative? Do you think they're both wrong? What, what do you think about it? Well, I, I mean, there's such a spectrum, right? Exactly. And so I don't mm -hmm. want to like, I don't want to say like this whole side is buying into this narrative, but just as you see in a lot of instances, there's a lot of selective sort of cherry picking of the facts to fit the narrative. There's an inability to acknowledge the wrongs and the, you know, the places where whatever team you're not cheering for, where they have a point. You know, there's just we have a lot of trouble uh, doing nuance in our public conversation. So I think that's what I would say. It's it's kind of infuriating, isn't it? Like yeah. <laughs> nobody, very few people think about stuff that goes on 
in a in a principles way or in an international law way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even so take World War II for example. I think every reasonable person was rooting for the Soviet Union and the US to beat Nazi Germany, right? But you could have that position but also say you guys shouldn't have nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. You know, there were credible reports that Japan was already defeated. They were basically trying to surrender and then they did it as a show of force to be like we're the big big dog on the block now. Yeah. So you know, I, I find a similar thing in this. Like, uh, one of the segments I covered was talking about how in Mariupol, there, Russia is just leveling civilian areas with shelling. And that's a war crime. And they're killing civilians in the process. It's the easiest thing in the world to condemn that. But some people who've taken a side have said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to condemn that. Now, on the flip side, the, uh, one of the Ukrainian Twitter accounts, I forget, Kiev Independent? No, it wasn't Kiev Independent. It was one other one. Yeah. They basically released a statement from special operations forces who are part of the Ukrainian military who said, now if we capture Russians, we're not, we're not taking prisoners anymore. We're going to kill them on sight. Yeah. And that's a war crime. And then they deleted the tweet immediately after because it's a war crime. They're just admitting to war crimes. So it shouldn't be hard to say all that stuff is bad and all that stuff is wrong. And that doesn't mean you can't quote unquote pick a side but it does mean you should be intelligent enough and honest enough and nuanced enough and moral enough and ethical enough to say, war crimes are bad. <laughs> how, is that, how is that a controversial position? Right. It somehow is, but war crimes are bad. And I'm sorry to keep babbling on here. I, I, I apologize. But um, I get so frustrated when, like, the people who are insisting this is all about NATO, how do you explain the half of Putin's speech, which was like, here's my 14 other grievances with Ukraine? And a lot of it's blood and soil. A lot of it's they owe us. Hey, we built you up. We funded you. You turned your back on us. Um, my, the Soviet Union was way too lenient on you, letting you out of being part of us uh, far too easily with no strings attached. How do you disregard that? Because that, that's an imperial ambition. It's saying you're rightfully ours. You're a fake state. And then, of course, the natural gas being found right off the coast of Crimea in 2012 and then in 2014 is when Putin goes in there and jacks Crimea. If, this was, if that was the same set of facts, but it was the U.S. doing it, everybody would say, that's imperialism and the U.S. wants the natural resources. Yeah. But now you can't say that? It, I mean, that's absurd. I mean, that obviously is a part of it. And I'm not saying NATO has nothing to do with it. I do think NATO expanding was needlessly aggressive. I would have liked to not expand NATO in the first place so you take away all of his fucking excuses yeah. so that when he still does something like this, we could all be like, well, come on, this is obviously wrong. Well, and, and Matt does make the point that, look, it was already pretty clear that Putin could have gotten an actual statement that Ukraine will not join NATO before the invasion started. But it still would have been good to put that clearly on the table so that in the 0.1% chance that that acted as some deterrent, at the very least, it helps to undermine, again, the propaganda he is trying to sell to his public. And that's the other piece of this that is frustrating is, number one, There is no harder situation to figure out what's really going on than when there's a war and there are incredibly aggressive propaganda efforts, obviously, from the Ukrainians in our own media and also from the Russians. And what you see in these selective narratives is an understanding that the other side's stuff is propaganda, but not applying that same discount factor to the propaganda that is supporting your narrative. And that's one of the other things that's extraordinarily frustrating. Let me give you an example of that, because this is just... Perfect. It encapsulates it perfectly. The, the 2014 coup slash revolution of the government. Mm-hmm. The people who are more aligning with the Russian narrative on this say it was a coup. It was a Western-backed coup, and so that was illegitimate. The government post-2014, totally illegitimate. Zelensky was elected in 2019. Yeah. So even if you grant them that, well, 
that was an election and he won. So do you have any accounting in your worldview for that or is that wholly dismissed? And the other thing is people who align with the other side say, look, that 2014 so-called coup wasn't a coup. It was more of a revolution because even though they didn't hit the number of votes that they needed to impeach Yanukovych, Yanukovych called for elections as a response to the pressure from the people in the streets. And then he fled the very next day. He left of his own volition, free of his own volition. So to call it a coup is flippant. Also to call it a revolution is kind of flippant too. Right. So it's like, if you're not, if you're telling all the facts and it doesn't fit easily into the narrative of the pro-Russia side or the pro-Ukrainian side, people's heads are just fucking explode and they melt down. And it's like, for the love of God, put the facts first, guys. It's not that difficult. This is this obsession with not giving the other side a talking point. Right. Right. And you see it rotting our discourse in like every corner of society. I mean, the same thing around the conversation about neo-Nazis. Oh, my God. I mean, Putin is ridiculous, like going in and saying, oh, we're doing denazification and that's what this is really about. And you're like, it's legitimate to point out that Zelensky is Jewish. He's Jewish. And recently (laughs) they bombed, they accidentally Bomb, maybe accidentally, maybe not, bombed a Holocaust museum, which was yeah. right next to the Kiev TV tower that they bombed. On the other hand, I mean, there are neo-Nazis. The Azov Battalion, Battalion is a real thing. It's part of the and, Ukrainian National Guard, yeah, and, and they it, are card-carrying neo-Nazis. Right, and um, listen, every country is going to have fringe extremist elements, but the fact that they are officially part of the incorporated government. into the National Guard and they're direct ties to the government means, like, yeah, that's a real thing. Now, that doesn't make Russia's actions justified. And it doesn't mean that their story about, oh, we're just fighting the fascists, like that's obviously clearly bullshit. But when you try to pretend like this hasn't been a significant driving force in Ukrainian like uber nationalism, it just I mean, that's just not true. And part of why it matters is because as we're assessing events and trying to figure out what we do, understanding that matters a lot. It matters a lot in terms of thinking about who we're arming and how we're arming and of course, what, and those yeah. sorts of Hillary things. Hillary said arm them in, <laughs> indiscriminately. Yeah. And when you have a very one-sided narrative, too, you end up with people like, you know, and former ambassador Michael McFall saying there are no innocent Russians and, you know, which Terrible. can justify yeah. all sorts of horrible things. And we're already seeing, and I know you and I both covered, this sort of mass hysteria of everything from, like, we're going to ban the Paralympic athletes to we're going to ban... Imagine that. We're going to ban the Russian cats to some, like cancer oncology network saying we're pulling out of Russia. It's just, it's very disturbing how quickly a population, and especially right now, I mean, the people who are going down that lane, a lot of them consider themselves liberals and progressives. Mm -hmm. How quickly a population can be led into a mass xenophobic hysteria. And you start to understand like, oh, this is how we went the, down the road of like Japanese internment camps. That's right. That's how we and got there. I can see it. I can see it from here. Ten states banned Russian vodka. So it's not even like some small business owner in Mississippi was like, I don't want to sell Russian vodka. It was ten states. Governors signed bills saying ban Russian vodka as if some regular, you know, Joe Schmo or Vladimir Schmo or Sergei Schmo in, in Russia, some small business owner, even some medium-sized business owner is guaranteed to be in lockstep with the actions of Putin. 1,700 people were arrested on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg protesting the war. How do you know that the person that you're banning is not one of those people? It really is flat-out xenophobia. It's flat-out bigotry. There are so many things we could talk about at length in this. And even to the point on uh, Ukraine and neo-Nazis, the the far-right party, like the Nazi-aligned party, got about 2% in the Ukrainian election. But I've still heard people describe it as the Ukrainian government is a neo-Nazi government. Mm. For the love of God, people. And also, let's keep it real. 
Putin is an oligarch imperialist. That's what yeah. he is. But the idea that there's not far-right factions that are Nazi-aligned in Russia? Of course there are. Of course there are. So, I mean, the thing that drives me the most crazy is the clinging to narratives, no matter, like, despite all evidence of the contrary, just ignore everything that doesn't fit into your narrative, cling to the thing that you want, and just pummel that home 24-7, and there's no other word for it but dishonest. It's dishonest, it's disingenuous, and the only people that I'm interested in hearing their take on it is people who are at least honest enough and willing to put the facts first before they, you know, go off into their opinion. I don't care about your ideology. I don't care, I don't want, if you're putting your ideology before the real world things that are happening on the ground, you're a dunce. You're a dunce, you're doing the, the classic thing of like a little toddler who's drooling, square peg, round hole. Why won't it fit? That's what you're doing, that's what you are. So don't do that. <laughs> to try your best to be objective and be honest and look at everything and then form your opinion. Yeah. And it's okay. I'm not saying everybody has to agree with me 100% on it. Yeah. Uh, 100% with my position. Just be honest. Be open to the reality as complex and challenging as it is. And it's okay if sometimes your commentary or your view aligns with things that people are saying on the right. And it's even okay if sometimes you're in partial agreement with libs. You know, I mean, sometimes the libs are going to have a point on something. Sometimes the right are going to have a point on something. And sometimes there's just this like this this rut that we get stuck in of like we have to oppose this group or that group and we can't have our view or ideology or analysis of the situation overlap with them whatsoever. And I think we've seen that on this a lot. Exactly right. Um, big thanks to Matt Duss for helping us through this conflict. I think that, um, I think Senator Sanders has been a really good voice gen generally throughout um, the whole escalation and where we are today. I think you've seen his sort of embrace of and development in foreign policy between his first presidential campaign and his second. And I think Matt Duss has been an important part of helping to uh, shape a truly progressive internationalist view, which is a force that, you know, it. Now there's still the total bipartisan hawkish alliance, but at least there's a little bit of a voice now that's a different narrative out there, and that matters a lot. Yeah, that's true. Guys, if you like the interview you just watched and you support the show, uh, be a member on Substack. Come join us on Substack. $5 a month gets you a video of the podcast a day early. And uh, for everybody else, you can subscribe for free on Substack, and then you get the audio version of the podcast as soon as, as, soon as it drops a day later, which is on Saturday. Remember, we don't take any ad money for this podcast. We're one of the very few podcasts that takes no ad money whatsoever. It's all funded by you guys, and we're very proud of that. So thank you so much for everybody who already uh, is a subscriber on Substack. We really appreciate it. We love you very much, and welcome to anybody who's about to go do it right now. Yes, love y'all. See you next week. <laughs>